Good morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Zeb Green, and I'm the clergy intern here, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, I hope that you have a blue name tag on so we know that who you are and can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We all love talking about this community, and we'd love to hear what brings you today and what you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and social hall. And please con consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in your program so that we can add you to our mailing list. You can drop it in the collection basket later in the service. I want to remind everyone to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be more present this morning. And while you're doing so, feel free to check in on social media. I'd now like to invite Kate Heston. This month, we are inviting our candlelighters to share a fear they have faced or are facing before they read our statement of purpose. Hello. Close enough. Um, my biggest fear I've been facing recently is a fear of infertility and not being able to have a family in the way that I've always imagined. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith and human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. Okay. As Kate lights our can community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candlelighting words. May we candle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. thank all those who have been brave enough to name their fears in this space together and what an honor it is to have those named here. We ring this bell each week in solidarity with people around the world. This week especially I know our hearts are full as we mourn the deaths of 59 people during the mass shooting in Las Vegas. We hold their families and friends, and indeed our whole country, in our hearts. As we listen to the chime this morning, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. 
invite you now to settle into a time of meditation. Make yourself comfortable in your chair. Close your eyes if you would like. Breathe in and out. Some weeks, some days, it feels there is so much to hold. So much pain, so much anger, so much suffering. On those days, I remind myself of the words in the song. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. I invite you now to breathe in peace, to breathe in your own centering and calm that you may find it, and to breathe out love, love for all this broken world, peace and love. You can be amazing, you can turn a phrase into a weapon or a drug. You can be the outcast, be the backlash of somebody's lack of love. Or you can start speaking up. Nothing's gonna hurt you the way the words do when they settle neath your skin. Keep it on the inside with no sunlight, sometimes the shadow wins. I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say and let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see you be brave. What you want to say, let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see you be brave. Everybody's been there, everybody's been stared down by the enemy. Falling for stop holding your tongue. 
Maybe there's a way out of the cage where you live. Maybe one of these days you can let the light in. Show me how big your brain is. Say what you want to say. Let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see you pray what you want to say. Let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see you be brave. Innocence, your history of silence won't do you any good. Did you think it would? Let your words be anything but empty. so much, Leah. Zeb and I are pleased today to share some stories from this community. This month, as we explore the theme of courage, we have been thinking about the fact that courage almost necessitates fear coming with it, although fear does not always lead to courage. These stories are stories of courage, people in this community facing their own fears. Some stories include names, some do not. Some will be spoken by those who experienced them and the rest read by Zeb and me. These are the voices of our people, this place, this courageous community. I want to note that sometimes courageous steps are little ones full of laughter even. And sometimes courageous steps are big, like reclaiming a life after trauma. Some of the stories we will share include trauma. Zeb and I will both be available after platform if you need to check in. And I know we will all be especially tender with each other as we hear our stories of courage together. This first story comes from Margaret Conway. I totally agree that courage is doing something in the face of fear. I've done so many things that felt really easy for me, but to others seemed courageous, like traveling through Latin America alone when I was 24. But I think the most courageous thing I've ever done was get married, and along with it, being willing to love and trust someone. Maya Angelou's poem, Touched by an Angel, captures the courage that took for me. And suddenly we see that love costs all we are and will ever be. This story comes from Linda Silver Smith. In the summer of 1998, when internet dating was new, I decided to try it. There was an interesting guy on the ad website I visited but he was very open about being in remission. 
from some kind of cancer, I decided it was worth a try. Despite the possibility of all sorts of medical issues, Larry and I had eight mostly wonderful years together before the cancer won out. I learned how good a marriage can be. This story comes from a woman who wears gender non-conforming clothes. For my current job, I wore masculine clothes, a tailored men's suit, to a job interview, including, crucially, the final interview with the big boss. I remember being very nervous about it, but figured I ought to be upfront with who I was and how I present, rather than hide it for the hiring process only to show up differently later. It was a rip-off-the-band-aid approach, and it happily worked. This story is from a woman who identifies as lesbian. I am in front of groups of new people all the time for my work. I have to make choices all the time about whether or not I mention my son, either when telling a story or giving an example of something kids teach us, and why? Because inevitably, as a result of still toxically rampant sexism, somebody will ask me when I'm traveling, who's watching my son while I'm gone? This happened far more when he was little, but I am astounded how often I have been asked this question. The courage required here is to refrain from saying, OMFG, you would not ask a man that. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I am always in a position to decide if I say his other mother. So I either have to decide then if I will say it or lie and say his grandparents, which I have done if I think that telling the truth about being a lesbian mom will be anything from problematic to distracting as in my role to hold the group. It is not in service to give a participant something to manage. If the entire room doesn't already know me, my heart pounds every time I pause in a way that shocks and saddens me. I hang a rainbow flag in our house door window. I think that an act of courage in the way you freak in the way you wave your freak flag high kind of way. I do it and it makes me nervous, makes me feel like a target. I do it anyway. Feels like if I don't, I'm hiding, and if there are other queers around, I assume it brings them some peace and solace to not feel like they are alone in my neighborhood. This story comes from Andrew Daly. The form of courage I show on a daily basis is a little lighter than most people's, perhaps because as a straight, white, educated male, the world often spins in my favor. Nevertheless, when I dress for work each morning, it's a little different than most people in my profession and in this city. I was raised in the South where bright colors and preppy bow ties are the norm. I continue to wear those colors and styles much to the amusement of my coworkers. When starting a new job, I'm always immediately known as the bow tie guy or the bright pants guy. I normally am not comfortable with drawing attention to myself, especially in the professional world. However, I have continued and will continue to wear my brightly colored pants and my bow ties because they make me happy. This story comes from a white man. In the mid-1960s, I joined a fraternity as a college freshman. At the time, it didn't register with me that everyone was white, but this began to bother me. 
I got to know an impressive African-American who exceeded all the criteria, criteria for membership. So I asked him if I could sponsor him to join. He accepted, and I accompanied him to pledge events. The rule in our fraternity was that if one member vetoed a pledge candidate, the person had to be dropped. As it turned out, more than one brother objected to my nominee, all of them on the grounds of race. I had to tell him what happened. He was deeply hurt, and I was angry. I quit the fraternity. And now, accused of thinking I was a morally superior to everyone else, no problem. I no longer cared what they thought. I moved into an apartment with some non-fraternity friends. We offered our apartment to be the site of the first meeting of a group devoted to the support of African-American students on campus. Fifty years later, that group still exists, but the fraternity does not. This story is from Trish Weil. It required a great deal of courage for me to make a dramatic and clear break from my family of origin and the influences of my upbringing. I grew up in Selma, Alabama from a very conservative and fundamentalist-oriented white family. I first began raising questions about race and religion when I was five. Things didn't seem right to me and very obviously didn't make sense. I was too young to be deeply troubled about these things then, but not too young to be aware of inconsistencies that had the most important of implications. My break didn't come until I was 23. I met a young Frenchman studying at Georgia Tech. I had hoped to leave Alabama to join a college friend in New England, but my parents talked me into living with a relative in Atlanta instead. There I met Francois. As he was studying with a Fulbright, he was required to return to France for at least two years following the term of his Fulbright. So my only means of continuing this relationship was to leave the country. Leading up to announcing my intention to do so to my parents was one of the very worst experiences of fear and dread that I have ever had. It seemed impossible to do. The fallout would be too great, not possible to face. I did it anyway. And yes, it was very difficult and painful. I married Francois and lived in France for the better part of three years. It was a wonderful experience of gaining some perspective on my own culture, especially on returning to the US. I was thinking in response to your query that finding courage can be a matter of desperation. But it's certainly a more positive to spin to say that courage can spring from great unmet need I had a need to say no and no and no. I had a need for boundaries. When the need, desire, and rightness of a move became strong enough, one has to make that move. I'd like to invite John Grimes to come forward and share his own story this morning. Wow, there are a lot of you here. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. I'm John. Uh, a few of you probably know me from around. Uh, Amanda put out a couple days ago a, uh, a call for men to come forward and share moments of courage from their lives. And, uh, and I responded that I'm not generally a fearful person, so I didn't really have, I had moments that other people might have thought of as courageous, but uh, I didn't think of them as such. 
and because I don't tend to feel that same kind of fear. And she said, well, you better get thinking. <laughs> so, so, so I thought about it for a while, and I talked to my wife about it for a while. And uh, I realized that I was facing a fear and have been for most of my life. I'm bisexual. Uh, this is the first time I'm coming out to anybody about it other than my wife. Uh, I've lived sex. My first conversation with my father about sex, the only conversation I had with him, I was 16, and he said, Johnny, when you have sex, wear a rubber. That was it. That was the whole conversation. So I had to kind of develop all of my views on sex my, uh, myself on my own. Uh, at this point, I'd already had three sexual partners, two women and one man. Two girls, one boy. Okay, we were underage. All right. And um, I developed this sense, being around the people I was, that this was somehow not normal to like both men and women. And that uh, somehow I was broken. And I had to pick a side at some point. So I just didn't talk about it with anybody. And I went on that way for most of my life, you know, trying to dabble here and there. And I had members of both sides tell me, you need to pick a side. Women who said, well, that's very threatening to my view of a relationship. And men who said, you need to just stop being a, stop being a, a fearful fag and come out because you're doing a disservice to our side. And I hid away who I was for a very long time. I realized recently that I was really doing a disservice to people like me hiding away. It's okay to be who you are. There's nothing to be afraid of in who you are. And I'm glad to finally be able to support that message. So, thank you. This story comes from a woman in our community. I grew up in a wealthy family. My parents had good jobs, and my mom's family had a strong legacy in our city's upper society. My parents were very respected in our city, and I constantly heard about what a perfect family we were. My parents' 80-plus hour work weeks led to me being able to hide my anxiety and depression for years. I had an easy time keeping up my grades and social commitments due to the privilege I had as a child in a wealthy, white, and overly educated family. My father wanted it that way, though. In addition to emotionally and physically abusing the entire family, my father had begun sexually abusing me when I was eight. By 12, I had gone through enough abstinence-only sex education to be ashamed of what was happening to me. Around this time, I started taking a hunting rifle out of the loaded gun rack, the locked gun rack, every night after the rest of the family was in bed, just to know I had the power to kill myself. 
insert gun control argument here. I eventually got away to boarding school, but my father's temper combined with my worrying anorexia led to the school not wanting to take me back after my junior year. Between ages 18 and 20, I had five psych hospitalizations for suicidal ideation and a sustained stay in an inpatient program for an eating disorder. My parents finally got divorced when I was 21. I remember feeling let down when mom told me about the divorce because she hadn't forced my dad out of our family a decade sooner. After a few more years and hundreds of hours of therapy, I was able to tell myself, my family, and my best friend since middle school, who was by this point my husband, the truth about what had happened with my dad. I'm now incredibly close to my mom and younger brother. My husband has been my best friend since we were 11, and he loved me through those unspeakably difficult years. I will never not live with this trauma. I still wake up at least once a week screaming because I'm convinced my dad is in the apartment looking for me. However, I do like to think I'm getting better at using my past trauma for good in the world. It's made me a more empathic friend, wife, and clinician. I hope to be able to draw on my childhood experience to be a better parent to my own children one day. At this point in my life, I am proud of the person I am. It took a lot of courage to live through the pain of my teenage years. I'm also proud that I still have the courage to keep fighting to become a better person, even if some days that courage manifests as nothing more than going outside long enough to walk my dog. This is my own story. I live with an invisible disability, hypokalemic periodic paralysis, HKPP. Essentially, my body does not process or retain potassium very well, which leads to muscle weakness and extreme cases paralysis. It took years before we learned how to manage my condition. Until then, it was entirely possible to see me walking around in the afternoon never knowing that I spent the entire morning in a wheelchair, literally unable to move my legs. One time, a roommate walked into the house to see me just picking up my left hand with my right and dropping it on the table over and over and over again. He asked me what I was doing, and I replied that it had been paralyzed for hours and that I was so bored just sitting there. <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> He was a good friend. He just sort of accepted that about me and went on his day. I generally try to be light about these things because it is so terrifying otherwise. Because of this condition, I've had to withdraw from numerous schools. I've lost a few jobs. I've started and restarted my life many different times. And the hardest part for me is always asking for help, is letting people know that I'm disabled. One time, I met with the disabilities department of the college that I was attending. The policy was that you couldn't get an accommodation without going through the office, which made sense. So I walked in with all of my paperwork, ready to see what they could help they could offer. They asked for documentation of my disorder. It was provided. Things were going well, right? 
up until the disabilities officer just looked at me and he saw a young, fit guy strolling in and asking for extra absences, a few more extensions, just an, an easier path through school. He must have saw me this way because he was skeptical. I thought that I wasn't asking for anything major, nothing that athletes wouldn't get to accommodate their schedules. And he said to me, are you sure a liberal arts education is for you? I was crushed. <laughs> How do you respond? Don't we need a liberal arts education? What do you mean, is it for me? A liberal arts education, I was told, requires participation. Why don't you think about it and come back later? I never did. <laughs> uh, when I inevitably got sick, the absence mounted, the assignments piled up, and I withdrew. The school wouldn't be my ally. They didn't believe that I was sick. Why ask for help that wouldn't come? Very few people believe that I was disabled. I learned to hide it. Why suffer extra humiliation? When I chose to apply to seminary, I couldn't hide this part of me. To pursue my calling to become a Unitarian Universalist minister, I had to go to seminary and get my master's. Vulnerability, trust, hope, all these things that we should cultivate in ourselves were required. I'll never forget my phone call with Jeremiah Callanday, the admissions director at Starking School for the Ministry. HKPP was put right out there. My need for accommodations, the spotty transcript, everything. I was ready for the worst. Instead, he said I'd fit right in. <laughs> A number of the staff and faculty had chronic health challenges. Disability rights were a justice issue that Star King takes very seriously. He encouraged me to visit and apply. I never even looked at a second school after that. They accepted me, and every time I was there and needed a helping hand, one was ready. Having trust in my community allowed them to help. There's still a nervousness inside of me whenever I need to claim my physical needs. People still don't always believe me, but I don't let that stop me anymore. Thank you so much to everyone who brought their voices to our platform today. It is truly an honor to hear your stories, to know the courage in this place, and be a part of a community that allows us to share all of ourselves. This is the time when we share our reflections on the platform how what we heard resonates in our own lives. I will bring the microphone around. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> uh, this is the time for our musical response. <laughs>
gotta be bad, you gotta be bold, you gotta be wiser. Gotta be hard, you gotta be tough, you gotta be stronger. Gotta be cool, you gotta be calm, you gotta stay together. All I know, all I know is love will save the day. your mother said, read the books your father read, try solve the puzzles in your own sweet time. Others may have cash in you, others take a different view, there is one soul who can live your own true life. You gotta be, gotta be bad, you gotta be bold, you gotta be wiser, you gotta be hard, you gotta be tough, you gotta be stronger. Gotta be cool, gotta be calm, gotta stay together. All I know, all I know is love will save the day. All I know, all I know is love will save the day. Love will save the day, your love will save the day.